Good afternoon and welcome back to the EJS show on the Liberty Block hosted by Ed, Jody and Steve and joined once again by Mike and Ed P as well today. Um, as always, we have several topics to discuss today. Before we discuss most of them, I wanna give a shout out to our friend Lauren Bobert from Colorado for two things. Um, number one, Apparently she channeled Ronald Reagan and said, Madam Speaker, tear down this wall, which I thought was awesome because apparently they are building that wall more and more and there's two levels of it or two circles of it. And it's just getting higher and stronger. I thought that was a great line. And the second thing she did is apparently somebody on Twitter um, manipulated a video to make it look like she's marching through the streets of Washington with her buddies from the KKK and hoods. And her answer basically was, no way, I don't march with Democrats. Yep. <laughs> so yes, that was, it's as good as it gets. And it brings me back to, wasn't it William Buckley who said I'd rather be governed by the band of people in the phone book? Yeah, the first hundred people in the Boston phone directory then. Right, by. and they make fun of her for not being, you know, sophisticated, educated, and being lower white class or whatever but I say more power to her. She definitely knows how to snap back at these people. Anyway, we had some feedback from last week's show where we were talking about digital currency and apparently alluding to underground economies and whatnot. So I'm gonna turn over to the Eds, the Ed brothers, if you will, to follow up on that feedback and pick up on that subject. One yeah, so, now so that the Eds, one has to speak. Yeah, so why don't you, Ed, uh, uh, start by, uh, you know, three-sentence recapitulation of your uh, point from last week. Well, uh, my, my point from last week was that a digital currency is a vehicle by which the government is going to take total control of our lives. It's going to be a bigger control than even healthcare, uh, socialized medicine is for our lives. When the government can track every single one of your transactions, it can follow you everywhere you go. It can decide whether you, it can turn your card off in the same way that Facebook currently turns you off and puts you in 30 day jail or a seven day jail. Uh, it can do it intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, there's no recourse. Uh, if you don't have, if you don't have access to, to your, to your wealth, there's no way to fight it. And in that sense, it's sort of like asset forfeiture law. Um, and I just think it's a grave danger that's, that's coming right around the corner. And various Democrats, and, and not just Democrats, but uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen and Fed Chairman Powell have both said that that's a high priority for the American government going forward. And I think it's a big danger. Well, I'm certainly against it. Uh, that, you know, I'm, so I, uh, and I, I think that you're right in that that's what they expect. That's what they want. They want control. But the interesting thing about this is that I don't think it's going to work. And I, I go back to some articles that I read that, um, you know, 25% uh, of U.S. households uh, um, don't really use bank accounts um, and 5% of them don't even have bank accounts. Um, this comes from an article from uh, Investopedia and another article uh, from the FDIC. Um, says 7.1 million households have no bank accounts at all. And um, I think that uh, the, you know, the reasons partially because they're poor or they use payday lenders or something like that, and partially because they don't want a bank account. 
And the other thing I thought was interesting is the size of the underground economy. According to Investopedia, again, the size of the underground economy was between 11 and 12% of the US gross domestic product, between 2.25 trillion to 2.46 trillion dollars. Uh, and not all of it is drugs and prostitution. There's all sorts of other things involved. And you can get, uh, you know, you can get, uh, this article and, and uh, read it yourself. But the idea that they're going to stop that, you know, that they're going to, you know, take away that 10% of the economy is, is, uh, is just not right. And there, it, it's not going to be stopped there. Something will replace green. If they take away greenbacks, something will replace greenbacks. I don't know what it is. It's going to be an interesting sort of libertarian question, you know, um, of an emergent currency, but there will be an emergent currency for those people who don't use it, you know, the poor and the people who are outside. I don't know what that currency is. It'll be interesting to see what it is, but the idea that they're going to take over and snuff out 10% of the economy overnight is just wrong. They're not going to stop drugs. They're not going to stop prostitution. They're not going to stop any of these other um, things in this article. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, now, philosophically, I think it's more like uh, George Orwell's 1984. If you remember 1984, there was the inner party, the outer party, and the proles. And the inner party and the, uh, and the outer party, that's where all of these huge regulations were. Um, you know, the big brother surveillance and everything were on the, the, the inner party and the outer party. Whereas the proles, they were more or less left alone uh, and their, their behavior wasn't governed. I think that's what's going to happen, you know, in this, this thing. It's, it's us. It's, it's the middle class that they want to control. The poor people, they don't care about. They're letting illegal immigrants with COVID come into the United States. I mean, they don't care about that. They're, they're just going to, but there is going to be some currency. And to the extent there is some currency picked up by the proles, uh, the People in the outer party, you, you and I, will be able to use it too. And it'll be interesting to see what it, what, what it is, what, what ends up being the currency. So it's unless, it's, unless it's precious metals like gold, I'm not sure what it can be. And even if it's gold, the government has outlawed gold in the past. I expect that they would outlaw it again in the future. And I think that they, they do mean to control us. And I think um, the person who doesn't have the bank account now will have a bank account, will have his Fed card. And the Fed card will be like a debit card for you and me for our bank accounts. Um, and it will allow the government, among other things, to uh, accelerate its policy of negative interest rates. Right now, it, 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 there's a limit to how far low the interest rate can go because people can withdraw cash from a bank. Uh, whereas if there's no longer cash, the money stays in the bank. Uh, we also just had a big stimulus bill this week and future stimulus bills are going to be very different. We're going to, we're, we're going to be given, you know, fed, fed credits, you know, and we'll only be able to spend them at Walmart or we'll only be able to spend them at Amazon. And if we don't spend them in the next 30 days, they're going to just disappear. It's not, we're not going to be allowed to save. Uh, the government's going to control our behavior a lot more than it does right now. So, um, yes. Well, I definitely I, think that's their goal. I'm, I'm totally on board with that. I just, I have more confidence in the, um, you know, in the public to f work around this. And I'm, I'm interested to see, I'm interested to see what the workaround will be because there will be an emergent currency 
because people will not always use this debit card. And that was basically my point. So it's an interesting libertarian question. You know, what will be an emergent currency in that situation? We will be screwed. Don't, you know, don't, <laughs> don't make mistake my point because we're, we're people with savings. We have bank accounts and jobs and stuff. We'll be screwed. But the uh, large majority of the underground economy will figure something else out. And it'll be interesting to see what that is. So Ed, I guess what I'm confused is you're laying out how big the underground economy is. To me, that gives unbelievable motivation. You know, there were numbers like trillions of dollars, and I think like $400 billion or something they lose in taxes every year to this. To me, that motivation would just make it much easier, um, more desirable for the government, just outlaw anything that's not purchased in this way. And I don't know what people can do about it. You know, go back to prohibition. And yes, of course, there was alcohol and speakeasies, but it was illegal. And going back to uh, Atlas Shrugged, which I know some of you are familiar with, that just makes more of us criminals just for buying anything in cash or accepting cash. So to me, the fact that so many people do work in the underground economy gives it all the more reason for it to happen. I agree with you. I don't know what Ed P thinks. I think uh, that's, uh, I think that's what they're thinking, and I think that's what they're going to do. But if if uh, people think, uh, you know, they're going to stop uh, drug transactions by banning uh, uh, cash, they are mistaken. No, they're not going to. Okay, but drug transactions are by definition done by criminals who, I'm told, don't obey the law, but you and I do. And we don't want to be criminals because, like you say, we want to keep our jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't see what we're going to do. Well, let me just jump in, though, because I think, I think with drug dealers, at some point, the, 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 the drugs have to come into the mainstream economy. The, you know, the drug dealers themselves might try and come up with some alternative to cash. But ultimately, the, the people at the bottom of the, you know, the end users they're not going to have any cash. So unless there's a way for them to get into that economy, and I don't, I don't know how that's going to happen. Uh, I, I don't see how the drug trade is going to continue the way it is right now. I mean, I, I mean, know. if it's illegal to trade in any other thing, it just, I would love to, yes, there will always be people doing cryptocurrencies and stuff, but by definition, all that's going to become illegal. That's a big mess. They'll just pay each other in uh, Walmart gift cards. Yeah, gift cards or ammunition or cigarettes or something that or other types of favors, maybe. Um, cigarettes worked out really good with a guy named, I think, Eric Garner. So cigarettes were the currency in, um, you know, uh, prisoner of war camps in Second World War. Right, but the point is, if he was arrested and subsequently died as a result of illegally selling loose cigarettes, then why would that not be the same fate for people trading? Oh, I think that would be the same fate, just as you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people sell illegal loose cigarettes in, in uh, New York and he happened to get caught. I think there will be people who got caught. I think it will be a very small fraction. Well, they're gonna need an army of social workers to enforce that. 
they yes. won't. Defunding the police, exactly. So. I mean, maybe maybe you should go another way. Maybe the only hope is the illegal aliens or undocumented citizens, as we call them now. Maybe they'll be allowed to, just like they're allowed to not be tested for COVID and spread around the country. And the rest of us plebes don't have that. So maybe that's the angle we need to take is we can't make immigrants use this currency because I don't know, they're not educated enough for some other ridiculous reason why. It's racist. Think, to use yeah, it's it. racist. I think they're, they're going to make everybody use it. They're going to issue. They're going to issue everybody a debit card, and they're going to make cash illegal. And and they'll pull cash off the streets, probably by saying, you know, we'll give you, you know, a hundred thousand dollars on your debit card, and you know, give us your seventy thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars. They don't care. They're printing money as you know, like it's, you know, they're printing a lot of money right now. They'll just print more on these electronic balance sheets. And they'll suck all the cash out of the economy practically overnight, as far as I can see. Um, maybe some criminals will try and hold on to it, but it's going to be illegal to spend. And there's going to be no place where you can use it. I mean, other than these illegal transactions. So um, I, I see it as a, as a gigantic threat. I don't think it's going to be such an easy workaround. And they um, can train dogs to smell this, can't they? Smell cash, yes. Right. So in other words, when you get stopped because your taillight is busted and a dog sniffs cash, that now becomes like marijuana and they can search your car and seize it all. I, just, I don't know how it stopped other than, you know, if I call myself Joseph Kennedy and, you know, go into business bootlegging cash, as it were. I, I don't know how it stopped, but I think I may have asked this question last week. Is there a serious drive on now? to make this happen. Yes. Yes, I think there is, yeah. Fed Chairman Powell and Secretary of, of the Treasury Janet Yellen both made statements just before last week's show, so about maybe 10 days or so ago, saying that this is a high priority for the US government. Um, the Chinese are, are said to be working on a, on a digital currency and there's talk that they're gonna test it out during the Winter Olympics in Beijing in 2020. Three, I guess. Okay, so when they're saying high priority to have a digital currency, are they saying have a current have no other currency be legal, yes. or are they saying we're just going to introduce this? Well, they always introduce it, you know, just as a as a trial run. But the goal is to end cash. They're trying to create a cashless society, and and they're going to tell everybody also how how convenient it is to not have to carry cash, um, you know, having a debit card where you won't, where only you know the pin number makes it more secure. You don't have to worry about getting mugged. You know, they're gonna, there's a whole bunch of things they're gonna use. You know, they're gonna say, we're gonna go after the, the underground economy. Your taxes will eventually go down because all this new activity is gonna get caught within the, uh, you know, within the sales tax. Um, this is a big deal. And I think that it's, it's going to take away our liberty in ways that we don't see. Um, I see it as a bigger threat than socialized medicine. And I see it, there's, there's an opportunity here. And the opportunity is, if there's a big enough group of people who refuse to use it and then use some other currency instead, some emergent currency, I think it's an opportunity to... Um, I mean, I understand the risk and I understand the threat, but I do think it's an opportunity to be able to potentially undermine the Fed when, um, when this new 
you know, underclass emergent currency uh, comes into being. If they offer you two Fed dollars for every dollar you trade in or 1.5 or whatever, how many people are going to resist that? How many people are going to be able to say, no, I'll just hold my cash? You got to hang out in some bad neighborhoods sometime and see. <laughs> I think there's, I think there's a lot of Bronx, people so that do it. Huh? I go to a lot of places in this country, for, at least in, before COVID. And, you know, <laughs> there are plenty of um, people who are not going to go for it. As the blind well, but it say, sounds like gun buybacks where people sell their busted up guns and keep the good ones. Yeah. I don't know. And what if they gave $10? So I have a question. Since for the most part, money isn't really backed by anything. Why is there any limit on the amount of money the government can say they have? What, what physically limits them from saying, we're going to transfer $5 trillion to each of the uh, Democrat states right now? What is to stop them from doing that? I mean, the threat of inflation, although the current theory that's big is modern monetary theory that says they can do exactly that. But there's nothing that restrains them from any amount, right? Other than inflation, yeah, and the currency collapse like in 23 in Germany. I heard that Venezuela just putting out a, billion, a million dollar bill that's worth 50 some cents or something. But well, I have a $100 trillion Zimbabwe a bill upstairs in my collection. That's one of my favorites. $100 trillion. $100 trillion. Yeah. And what's it worth? Well, nothing. But um, it was at the time it was printed, it was, it was worth you know, a few cents. A few American cents. But some would say that can't happen to the American economy because, I don't know, we're too big to fail or something. It is true that the way the financial, the international financial system is set up, um, the uh, U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency. And so to destroy the United States in, the af in an afternoon, um, all Russia and China would have to do is, is uh, create a, a real currency. The problem is there's not a whole lot of trust in those guys that, and they're just as corrupt as our people are. So they don't want a hard currency. I mean, but they, if they said from now on, we're only going to trade in gold or silver or something. Um, and, you know, well, the, Rus the Russian believed the it. Sorry. And, and people believed it. Then the United States is over that afternoon. The problem is people wouldn't believe it because neither Russia or China are trustworthy, but well, the they Russians and the Chinese are already trying to denominate more and more of their trade, either in their own currencies or the euro or, or some other currencies. They're, they're trying to start to divest from the dollar. Yeah, the real problem with the, with the renminbi, the, what they call the yuan in China, is it's not, um, uh, there are capital controls on it. So the, the problem with the Chinese is, suppose you make a million American dollars worth of Chinese money. Um, you can slowly get that out of the country a little bit at a time. And then once it's out, you can, you know, move to Vancouver. Um, if you make $10 million in yuan, you can't. And if you make a billion dollars, you definitely can't. So there is this level of people the, in kind of the upper middle class entrepreneur class in China that, that can get enough of their money out 
despite the capital controls that they can, that they can leave. And it's a kind of a dr brain drain because those are the people who are the up and comers, you know. Um, it's the people at the, who've made tons of money, they can't get their money out. Um, so they're kind of locked in and the people at the bottom, they don't have any money to get out. And if they made the one completely convertible, I think there would be a huge exodus of people uh, with brains from China. I mean, there may very well be a huge exodus of people from Hong Kong uh, now that Britain has given them uh, British passports or think they're going to give them British passports. And uh, that would be difficult. So again, th th it's the corrupt nature of the Chinese and the Russian governments that are keeping the American dollar. You know, they're just slightly more corrupt than our government is. And, and so uh, keeping the American dollar. And, and what that means is when they print American dollars, most of the inflation is exported. Um, that's relatively important for, um, you know, the Fed screws other countries more than it screws Americans. And that's why it can go on. Um, as soon as other countries get sick of that, then that won't happen anymore. Okay, maybe you can explain to me the economic system, how this works. So Biden gets a law passed, we're gonna give away $1.9 trillion. Now, unlike with Iran, that doesn't mean they're gonna put money together in a plane and send it somewhere. My understanding is they go somewhere to some computer screen and move something to another computer screen. Is that, is that sort of correct? Uh, well, the, I mean, it's, it's way too complicated, but basically the treasury borrows the $1.9 trillion from uh, you know, issuing bonds. Um, the bonds go through the big banks in New York who take a cut. So for the 1.9 trillion, some cut goes to the big banks in New York. And then the bonds are bought by either human beings or institutions or the Fed, Federal Reserve itself. And when the Fed buys the bonds, the Fed balance sheet you know, goes up and uh, it's like printing money. It's like that money is printed. So, uh, um, so then, then the money is on the treasury account and they write checks on it. I mean, okay. that's maybe, I can, maybe I can back you up here because for me it's late in the day and my brain is fried. The, the treasury wants to give away $1.9 trillion. Right. In order for them to have it on their screen to move it to Cuomo's screen, they have to say we're selling bonds, meaning we're borrowing money. Right. The people who they're borrowing money from are regular people through banks and or banks and or the Federal Reserve, which means what? The Federal Reserve is buying it based on what? How are they buying? They're creating money out of thin they're, air. They're creating money out of thin air. That's basically it. But uh, the, the banks Federal also- Reserve. The, yeah, and the banks also create money out of thin air. I mean, this is a very complicated topic. Um, at, at, it's a very complicated topic that I know a little bit about, but- That's why we're asking you it. Um, but, uh, yeah, so- the banks create money every time they make a loan and they destroy money every time a loan is paid off. That's how money comes in and out of the system. The banks create money based on their, their uh, risk 
assessment of whether the loans can be paid back and whether they have enough uh, capital. And then occasionally there are checks on the banks uh, um, from the Federal Reserve to say whether they have enough reserves, which means you know cash on hand, deposits at the Federal Reserve, um, treasury bonds, other bonds, et cetera. And they add all that up and there's various percentages for each and then the but the, the thing is that that only happens like once a quarter and basically the banks fudge everything anyway. So um, by, by borrowing higher quality reserves in exchange for lower quality reserves on an overnight swap so that for one day they have enough reserves. But basically the banks just loan out as much money as they possibly can um, uh, within their risk you know, prioritization and then that creates money. Um, it's not. It's not quite. There, there's a really good uh, article on this uh, put out by the Bank of England that uh, I could potentially send you guys. That that it sort of explains how it works nowadays. Um, as far as internationally is concerned, um, even though the Bretton Woods system has been broken for most of the um, you know last 50 years, the uh, the idea is that. Foreigner, foreign banks issue money that is in some way tied to the US dollar. Um, so they, they pyramid their currencies based on the US dollar. That's how the, the in, inflation of the US dollar that the Fed has engaged in in the last 10 years um, causes inflation in other countries because other countries' currencies are implicitly tied to the dollar. Some explicitly tied to the dollar, other implicitly tied. Um, you know, the, the euro was set up as a competitor to the dollar, so that's a little bit independent. The pound has always been a little bit more independent, but most of the rest of the currencies are just pyramided right on top of the dollar. And so the inflation- well, that, was, that was the explicit- it was explicitly that way before Nixon took us off gold. It used to be that the right. dollar was only the dollar was convertible to gold and then everything else was convertible into dollars. Right. And so, but while some currencies float with respect to the other, the, the yen and the pound and the euro and the, and the dollar, most are kept in a very, very small range by um, their countries and by the Fed um, just uh, because the countries couldn't exist if they didn't. It, it's one thing for the United States to inflate its way um, into oblivion, but these other countries would do it every Thursday if they could. So they just don't buy. I mean, some some countries just use the dollar, and uh, you know, many. You know, I, I don't know whether you've ever been in any you know random foreign countries, but I was in. I don't know I was in Stockholm the last day, and I was there, and I was wandering around, and. I was like, you know, I don't have any, whatever the hell the Stockholm or whatever the Swedish currency was, kroner, and I want to buy something. I was like, would you take dollars? He said, sure. So I'm in some shop in Stockholm and uh, yeah, they'll take dollars, you know, everybody will take dollars. You know, it's, it's weird because we live in a country where if you went into a shop and say, hey, I only have these Canadian dollars, would you take them? They'd look at you if you're from Mars, but um, you know, we were, arguing in Turkey one day about the price of this. And he was going back and forth between Turkish lira and euros and dollars and this and that. And, and they're just used to using any currency available. 
it, it was, you know, it's just, it's just the way things go in these in these countries. So ultimately, you're saying the Federal Reserve can pull money out of thin air? They, that's what they do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and the mechanism for it is very, very complicated. They buy and sell bonds into the market. If they want to take money out of the market, um, they, they sell the bonds. And if they want to put money into the market, they buy a bonds. That's how they do it. Some, most of the time they buy and sell short-term bonds, but in this, la in this last 10 years or 12 years or whatever, they've been buying longer term buying bonds. it with what? What, uh, I know money made up on a computer screen. You know, they're, they're printing well, on, a, on a computer screen. Or if you look, it's a Federal Reserve note. They're the ones who print the money. Yeah. Okay. So well, now that's just printing, cash. They're printing too much money on the screen. What starts the inflation? Well, inflation is, you know, technically inflation is the amount of currency in the, you know, in the world. So the inflate, we've already had a huge amount of inflation. If you look at the graph from like the St. Louis Fed, you know, it, it, it goes like this and then up in 2008 and then, you know, and then way up in the last year. What we, but most people think of inflation is price inflation, right? right. Where the prices in the stores have gone up. And interest rates. Now, yes, they have. Now, I, I remember a few years ago, uh, I would go in and, and to the 7-Eleven or whatever, and I'd buy my Gatorade and it would cost like a dollar fifty. And this one cost, uh, I got this today, and this one costs like 270. So, I mean, this is just in a few years. So, we, there's obviously price inflation going on. Um, a, lot of the inf a lot of the price inflation goes into um, the stock market. Uh, so, uh, if you look at the, the Fed's money printing graph and the Dow Jones or the S&P 500, they track almost exactly to one another. So, um, so I don't think that there's been as much inflation as you say. And I think that, you know, Steve, you're, you're asking, when is the big inflation going to hit? And I think that the, the piece of the puzzle that we haven't discussed is all the businesses that have failed, all the bankruptcies that have happened. Every time a loan goes bad, you know, Ed said that when a bank retires a loan, uh, it, it destroys money. Well, if a loan goes into default, the money was destroyed, is, is destroyed as well. And we're seeing a lot of loan defaults and, and bankruptcies, especially in the last year since businesses have been shut down. Um, and those, uh, those bad loans and uh, lead to destroyed currency and destroyed money. Um, and it's a counterweight to all the money printing that's been happening. And there's a big debate in the economics and finance community as to which one is gonna prevail. Uh, some people think that there's gonna be major inflation uh, other people think that there's going to be uh, widespread bankruptcies that's going to outrun the inflation and is going to lead to deflation. I think what, okay, so what tops the bubble? What I'm trying to figure out, and I, I get I don't understand all this, but what makes it no longer work? We've gotten away with this game for so long. What stops it from working? So the Fed, there's not enough money, so the Fed will puff some more money out of thin air. What stops it? If we, if we had the answer to that, I think that whoever has that answer is going to be a very rich man someday. Yes. My guess is that what's going to happen is the banks are going to start failing. And I, I made that prediction a couple of weeks ago. I think that when the, when the real estate, uh, when the foreclosure and the eviction moratoriums are allowed to expire, uh, a lot of real estate is going to go bad. And a lot of banks are exposed to real estate in a bad way. Um, and I think that they're going to wind up in a lot of trouble. And I think okay, so again, 
realizing that I don't understand what I'm talking about. These banks are quote unquote, too big to fail. We bail them out for hundreds of billions of dollars like we did years ago. I don't think we're going to bail them out. I think that's going to be the, the vehicle by which we get our digital currency. That's, that's my prediction. Um, I, you know, if I, you know, if well, I had what, st- what stops us from bailing them out with funny money? See, I disagree with Ed on this. I don't think the banks are going to fail. What what banks end up doing is they um, they lend money and then they immediately securitize the loans and sell the loans. Um, so the banks aren't really on the hook for these loans going bad. They they sell them into like real estate investment trusts. And then those are bought by institutions, they're bought by individuals, they're bought by pension plans and stuff like that. So the banks don't have as much exposure anymore to bad loan decisions. If they can sell, if they can securitize them and sell them. And, uh, and then, and, you know, that keeps, this process is what keeps Goldman Sachs in business, right? And that's what they do. They securitize stuff and sell them. So, uh, I do think that what happened in um, in 2008 is that these securities started going bad, and because the banks and other organizations were using these securities as collateral for other loans, then it, it generated this giant cascading effect of uh, catastrophes. So um, I, I think there will be a catastrophe uh, at some point. Um, but, you know, again, you can't predict it. But didn't they the avert the catastrophe by pulling money out of thin air? Um, that's start. what they did in, um, you know, 2008. They, uh, they just printed a bunch of money. Right. So then why is it a catastrophe? Why don't they just keep doing the same game? And they will, you know, they, and you can do it. Right. So know. once again, what, what, how you does it fail? You can do it until you can't. Yeah, so that's what I'm asking. What is this point that says you can't and why can't you? I don't have the answer to that other than that at some point, the, the, the defaults are going to be so great that it's going to overwhelm the system. That's what I think is going to happen, that people are going to default faster than they can print money. And it's and the, but we don't have to. Pr- we talk about printing money, but we don't print money. Is there enough cash in the world? to represent all the money that's going around in the world? I doubt that. Well, there's this thing called uh, the money of zero maturity, the MZM. I think that's the best, um, I, I think that's the best understanding of how much money there is in the US economy. And uh, as of today, it was, oh, as of, I'm sorry, as of uh, February 1st, it was $22 trillion, which is about the size of the U.S. economy, um, and uh, you know, the fact that it'll go up probably another trillion, twenty-two to twenty-three, because of the um, because of the stimulus bill. Um, again, you can see that it's not that much. If it goes up from twenty-two to forty-four, or to sixty-six, or to eighty-eight then you're getting into the realm of things are going to collapse. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think that um, it's going to be as big a deal, uh, this stimulus. 
I think what becomes a big deal is when they say, okay, we're going to do these, we're going to send out these $1,400 checks forever, you know, or, you know, we're going to, the great reset, right? We don't want all these businesses open again. We'd rather have people on the dole and we'll just print money to have them. Um, well, the, the, you know, the Ludwig von Mises, right? His, his uh, great, well, he has many great advancements in the understanding of economics, but one of the things is let's, put money aside for a moment and look at stuff because people don't care about money. They only care about stuff. They want to eat and they want to buy houses and they want to, you know, clothe their kids and, you know, and so if you look at, if you look at the money just kind of weirdly obfuscates the, the reality, which is production and um, consumption. And so as long as production is, Keeping up. Talking, I'm sorry, what you're talking about is asset prices going up, right? That, that's ten, that tends to be what people see. Yeah, I mean, I want to, you know, are, are we still producing food, you know? Uh, are we still producing houses? Are we still producing consumer goods? You know, is, look at production. As long as production is fairly high, I think we're going to be okay. Um, as, a, as an economy as a whole. Um, but as these, uh, you know, negative in, low interest rates or negative interest rates interfere with production, um, which could happen down the road as people make this, you know, bad decisions based on the, um, based on the uh, interest rates, then you could potentially have some sort of a, another 2008 happen or something. I have two questions for you. One is my understanding is it collapses when there's nowhere else to borrow money, but how is that true if we can keep borrowing money from ourselves, money that we don't even have anyway? And I mean, I'll give you that question for the minute. So in 2008, what ended up happening was, um, you know, and it's relatively complicated, but there's all these private parties that had these agreements, um, you know, that, uh, basically loan agreements or swap agreements and they just couldn't meet them. You know, they couldn't, they couldn't, um, they couldn't honor the contract that they had with their counterparties. And um, in a, you know, a free country, they'd all go bankrupt. But what ended up happening in, uh, in 2008 was the, the treasury and the fed stepped in to bail these people out these companies out and uh well, that's it, the kind of mass default that i was talking about a few minutes ago i mean that's yeah. what happened but the, then you're right they the government bailed them out so i mean as long as the bailouts are going to come it can it can go you know until nobody wants dollars anymore and and again that goes back to what we we're saying earlier with that and i'm sorry to take up too much time you guys want to talk about other things but you know the people who survived the german hyperinflation in um you know in 1923 were the people who had access to foreign currency so um which was not everybody by the way and it's the same thing with the venezuelans and the zimbabweans and things like that if you have access to foreign currency um and you can diversify your currency holdings, your savings by putting it in other places, you can ride out a currency crisis. But you know, very few people in the United States even have any 
foreign currency at all or even know how to get foreign currency or wouldn't know what to do with it when they had it, you know, put it under their mattress or whatever. So Okay, so since I know somebody who works in overseas without giving specific places and he wants to put his money in euro in a German bank, is that actually that becomes a good idea? Well, I'm not giving investment advice. I'm just saying, yes, if you if there if inflation gets out of control in the United States, then um, and it's not out of control in some other country, then, yeah, having some foreign currency is a is a. Why would you say that that foreign currency is a, is any way of a hedge, given that all these currencies are ultimately derivatives of the dollar? They're not all totally derivative, right? The yen and the euro and the pound are have their own. Thing, you know, have their own um, identity. Most of the rest of them are derivatives of the dollar, though. I guess my next question is this inflation question. I seem to be hearing two opposite things. On the one hand, we're talking about um, negative interest rates, but inflation, I thought, means very high interest rates. So how can we be doing both simultaneously? If inflation is going to raise the interest rate, why are we talking about we're going into negative interest rates? Well, I think what Ed was saying was that, um, you know, when people talk about price inflation or price deflation, um, I think people are thinking, well, you know, a lot of bankruptcies are going to happen due to these COVID lockdowns, and that is going to destroy a lot of money. And that could very well cause price deflation in the short term. And then as they throw printed money into the system to try to prevent that, um, that would potentially cause price inflation in the long term. And I, I think that's the kind of consensus of what people think is that is there's going to be price deflation. The problem is that there's a consensus one way or the other. I think it's a big debate right now. Yeah. The, the problem is, I think, how do I say this? Consumer goods, consumer staples, are just one part of the economy, but it's the part we all see, right? We go and we buy our Gatorade and we, we buy our cat food. That, that's kind of one piece. And I don't think the, I think the idea that, um, that if you print a lot of money, you know, if, if you print a lot of money, you put it someplace, right? You print it, you put it someplace. It happens to be put in the banks. When all money is printed, it's put in the banks. And then you think, well, it'll, it'll diffuse out into the whole economy, and then you know all the prices will rise by however much that is. But I think what the last 20 years have shown is that diffusion rate is very slow. It's much slower than people uh, thought. And uh, I think it's so not just that it's a slower rate, Ed. I think it's that the banks are no longer lending to the public as much. They're buying government treasuries. They're got, buying government bonds and financing government deficits. So I think that's really part, you know, part of the issue that's, that's happening. And, and, and like I said, the stock market is going up as the money printing is going up. So it's going into the stock market. It's going into my 401k, your 401k. Mm -hmm. It's going into things like that rather than um, into now, eventually it will go into the um, consumer staples and, and like I said, it is, it is slowly going into the consumer staples, but the, the idea in classical economics is that it would go very, very fast. But I don't think that's true. I think it, it goes much slower than uh, people realize. 
Um, it's really sticking in the financial markets right now. What about the issue that the government likes inflation because it makes their debt cheaper to pay? Yeah, that's true. So how does that work? Why doesn't the United States just say, okay, our money's worthless and that's what we owe you? What stops that from happening? So uh, well, the government can default, sure. I mean, if they wanted to. Yeah, but if they default, if we default, then nobody will lend to us again. That's what stops them. They want to keep borrowing. They want to keep spending. Right. But if you do a small amount of inflation, I don't know, 5% on the dollar, people are still going to lend you because they can't let us fail. No one's going to let the United States fail, are they? Yeah, I mean, the, the uh, Fed, I think our enemy, uh, go ahead, Ed. Well, the, the Fed already says that it wants to have inflation of, you know, the consumer price index, which is this little teeny part of the economy that deals with my cat food and my Gatorade. They want that to go up at 2% a year. Um, so that's their target rather than zero, which is what, you know, it should be. I mean, well, the Fed shouldn't exist at all, but, you know, if you're going to do something, you just try and keep prices sta stable. Um, so, yeah, they, they, that's what they, they want inflation. Right. That is exactly, that's part of their plan. That's baked into the cake for them. Okay. So tying this into one of the other stories is that this stimulus, from what I can tell, is going to bail out a whole bunch of blue states that throw around money like they have it. And now we're making it all good for them so they can keep doing this, all the pensions they can't pay, et cetera, et cetera. Now they're, they're doing that also for funny money, right? The feds are paying the states in funny money, but there's zero incentive for any state ever to not go insanely into debt, right? I mean, is there any limit on the amount of debt Illinois can hold or California can hold? Because they do know that sooner or later, they may have to wait three presidential cycles, but sooner or later, the feds will cough up money from God knows where. Yeah, well, first of all, if they get a Republican administration, they're not going to get the same kind of money that they just are getting from the Biden administration. But secondly, they may not be able to wait three generations or three presidential administrations. They don't get to print money the way the U.S. government gets to print money. But they just so did. You know, the point is California, New York, Illinois, they've been doing this for years and they waited until Biden came and then he bails them out. So they're they'll break a bankruptcy, though. And if Trump had won the election and had said no, I mean, that's the thing. I think Trump would have given this money anyway, um, which is a whole separate discussion. But uh if they didn't get this bailout, they were there are a bunch of states like New Jersey and California and Illinois that are facing bankruptcy. Um, and this is going to temporarily stave it off. Um, I'm not overly. Uh, it doesn't bother me as much as I thought it was going to bother me, because these states are using this infusion of money um, not to reform the bad practices that they've engaged in, but just to smile and say we can keep the keep the party going. To and accelerate the bad practices, really. What'd you say? To accelerate the bad practices. Yeah, exactly. So they're going to wind up in bankruptcy in a year or two or three anyway. Why? Um, okay, here's the deal. You, you go into bankruptcy because you owe money you can't pay and nobody wants to lend you money anyway. But I'd be very happy to lend California money at 100% daily interest. I lend them every penny I have and I'd get everybody else to knowing, knowing that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, somebody will make it good for them. In other they words- They can't afford to pay that kind of interest rate, Steve. Um, sure they can, because they're only gonna pay what they need to pay until they get all their money back. And I don't mind gambling on that. I know for a fact that every 10, 12 years, there's gonna be a Democrat president 
who's going to send Cuomo and Newsom hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. I'm willing to lend my money. That's no worse a gamble than sticking my money in the stock market that in 10 years I'm going to have more money. The fact is we're always going to bail out the states. Yeah, it's very interesting. Every um, Democratic president in my lifetime has begun their term with bailouts for the states. Uh, Jimmy Carter did it. Clinton did it. Uh, he, it was like 50 billion. Uh, Obama did it. There was, you know, his stimulus, 800 billion, um, uh, 1.9 trillion from Biden, and it's basically to pay off their big city mayors for their profligate spending and the uh, blue, the worst blue states, New York, California, Illinois, um, for their profligate spending. Every single time, the first thing they do. I'm not kidding. It's really the first thing they do is to pay off their constituents. And uh, that will continue until, you know, the apocalypse. Well, that's what I'm saying. In other words, California will always be able to borrow money knowing that within eight, 10, 12 years, it's always gonna come back. So yeah, if I'm Alexander 30 years Hamilton. old, what's that? Blame Alexander Hamilton. He's the one who started it. I didn't go see his play. Is that enough punishment? <laughs> the play is amazingly good, by the way. It's not, oh, I hated it's not it. historical, but it's great. It's wonderful. Uh, it's I hated it. Terrible. I hated it. Oh my God. Terrible. <laughs> anyway. In interesting. <laughs> at the end of, at, at the, in the first year of the Washington administration, um, Hamilton convinced Washington and the Congress to bail out the states who still had um, debts. No war debt. Um, from the Revolutionary War. Some states like Virginia had already paid their debts off and so objected to it, but all the rest of the states said, yeah, we'll take your money. And it was, it was really the first thing they did and it was the first unconstitutional action taken by the federal government, which was the first thing the federal government did after being formed. So the idea that the constitution was a check on the federal government kind of died like a couple of months after the government formed. Okay, so when my 30 year old children want to invest their money long-term, the safest bet is to buy California bonds at ridiculously high rates because sooner or later, the feds are going to make good on it. And there's nothing to stop. I don't think life. so. I mean, I'm not giving investment advice either, but I don't think that's a wise retirement plan. And if in fact they are going to be bailed out, then the interest rates wouldn't be high because the- Well, they're going to go up and down depending on the likelihood of being bailed out and how much risk I want to take. But what I'm saying is, there's not that much risk of losing the money you lend a bankrupt state compared to what there is to putting it in any other, you know, uninsured kind of investment. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Because do any of us think if you were president, Ed Maslich, if you were president, you would let California go bankrupt, what would happen? I'd build a wall around California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we Libertarians always talk about secession. We don't want secession. We want the ability to kick states out of the union. That's, well, by the way, that's those, what we want. those are two sides of the coin that some of us are actually working on. But so California goes bankrupt. So that means that they pay less on all the money they owe to everybody they owe the money to, correct? In principle, they, yes. I'm sorry? 
In principle, it's yes. It's unprecedented. We don't really know what would happen if a state went bankrupt. because There's so many happens. laws involved, like California. Um, okay, so the unions ran out of, of um, present money to extract from corporations and governments in terms of wages. So what they did was they bargained for large pensions. The pensions have driven a lot of companies into bankruptcy, but they've gotten to the point where there are, there are cities in California that pay over 50% of their revenue uh, as pensions to former workers. And that, um, and, and the unions do this. I always say unions don't represent workers anymore. They represent former workers. So it's, um, the pension crisis is just completely out of control. The unions will go to the uh, you know, government and say, okay, our people are making $15 an hour, $20 an hour. Um, we'd like 25. And they say, we don't have the money to, for 25. And they say, okay, how about, you know, an increase of the pension 20 years down the line? And the politician says, I'm not going to be here 20 years down the line. Sign me up for that. And so they get a 2% raise in wages and a 20% raise in pension 20 years down the line. And this has basically just destroyed the cities in California uh, and, you know, in Chicago and New York City and, you know, this, the pension uh, costs have just been, you know, outrageous. And if a state goes into bankruptcy, say California goes into bankruptcy, apparently, and I'm no lawyer, but apparently pension can't be cut. There's no legal way to cut them. They, pension well, there's obligations no, there's can't no be provision in the bankruptcy code for a state to go bankrupt. Yeah, and that's partly because states are sovereign and have the ability to tax. So in theory, they they're always solvent. They always can just raise taxes. Um, if a state reaches the point where it just can't make its pension obligations, we're going to be in uncharted waters, and we're we're close to that, but we haven't hit it yet. Yeah, I mean these cities we're are getting close in New Jersey. There's there's no question that. But again, the cities are going to get bailed out by the states who are bailed out by the feds. It's never, nothing's ever going to be allowed to collapse. And which well, it depends on the timing, right? So it depends on the timing. You know, if we're in the, the first year of the second term of Ted Cruz, and that's when the crisis hits, you know, uh, some California state, maybe they do, go, or city, and maybe they do go bankrupt. I don't know. It depends on the timing. I mean, bankruptcy would be very, very instructive. And I'm very much in favor of these cities going bankrupt and trying to discharge the pension obligation. Cities or states? City, there's already a provision in the bankruptcy code for cities. And I think Detroit went through bankruptcy during the Obama administration. Right, there are cities who have been bankrupt. Yeah, there have been, and there were a couple of California cities, I think uh, Stockton, California, and uh, a couple of others, I can't and remember. Yeah, Stockton was the one I was thinking of uh, that had Stockton are one of those cities in the Central Valley that that had had to lay off police and firefighters because they couldn't make their they, they had to meet their pension obligations. But so they even they the cities can't bankrupt pensions. Not that I know of. But who writes uh, that code that says that they can't? And why can't we rewrite bankruptcy code? I, I guess it's part of the state code, but there might be an ERISA um, federal law about that. And I'm not you know, again, I'm not I'm not an expert on in ERISA, but there's all sorts of um, provisions for uh, preserving pensions in that that law. Right, but laws can be rewritten. I think. Well, I think the issue there, Ed, is that 
governments are generally exempt from ERISA requirements. And if, if um, especially the funding requirements, if the private sector, if a private corporation funded its pension obligations the way the governments have been funding them, they'd be prosecuted for fraud under, under ERISA. But governments are specifically exempt. So I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any provision. I don't, I'm not aware of it. I'm not, I'm not an expert in ERISA either though. So I don't know. But I mean, with the union's power across the country, no one's ever going to have the guts to really piss them off. Not a teacher's union that's national or an SEIU or something like that. It's not a couple hundred people in the FAA. So I just don't the president, Steve. I mean, Reagan took on the air traffic controllers. I mean, you can do it. It just. How does the air traffic controllers compare to the teachers unions? One is thousands, one is hundreds and hundreds of thousands. I just don't see how it compares. Well, I think the real comparison is how does uh, Trump or, or Biden or Obama compare to Reagan? Well, forget that. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I just don't see anybody wanting to take that political risk. And I remember when Rush, probably around the time I stopped listening to him, started to explain why unions are a money laundering operation. And I thought that was rather brilliant. He goes, they steal, they steal the money from the state and then they give it back to the Democrats who voted it for them. And it's literally, I'll give you money, you give me money and it's all somebody else's money. And it's, it's a fantastic ruse. It's really brilliant, which is a problem with government unions. But we're not I gonna mean, get rid of If you were going to um, you know, really drain the swamp, and again, I, I appreciate uh, Trump's um, instincts just not as execution um well you, well, you just called for the execution of a president you reword <laughs> that his ability to execute his instincts um uh <laughs> you know defunding these leftist groups is is you know who who get their money essentially from the government it, it would be the number one thing i mean um they, they keep trying to defund Planned Parenthood, which you think would be easy, but they can't even do that, much less the, all of the legal foundations that, that fight and all of the unions and all of the other leftist groups that uh, uh, get their money from government. Uh, that would be one way to drain the swamp is to stop all of that money. I don't hardly know how. But, but Congress will never go there because everybody in Congress is beholden. It's just, it's never gonna happen. It is surprising how, you know, my always, uh, it's not surprising that the congressmen are whores. What's surprising is that they're such cheap whores. You know, you would think that they would, if they're going to sell their souls, you'd think they'd sell their souls for a lot more money than they actually do. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough, it's tough. That's why I like Lauren Boebert, right? She doesn't seem the type to sell her soul. She wears a mask that says Trump won in the, uh, in the um, uh, house floor, she uh, she carries her pistol onto the house floor and goes around the metal detector that uh, that Nancy Pelosi installed and dares her to uh, drag her through the metal detector. This woman, oh, I mean, the hope is the hope is that hanging out there for a long time doesn't destroy her, and that's something only time will tell. I want to talk about a slightly more positive thing in the news, and we can discuss what it means and. What exactly is happening? So Texas is saying they're sending their own troops to a border to defend it. Is that how people understand the story? 
That's how I understand it. So now these are troops that can't be controlled by the feds at all. Well, oh no, that's not true. Biden could always they could be federalized. Yeah, yeah they, they could be federalized. Federal. But supposedly Texas claims to have a military part that can't be federalized. I don't know exactly what it is, but I know they claim that. The Rangers, it, yeah. Okay, so technically Biden could say to Texas, you can't use your National Guard to do this. I'm taking them, right? Um, but well, it's- technically, technically what they could do, what he could do is they could, he could file a lawsuit the way Obama filed a lawsuit against Arizona and get a court order to say, you can't do this. And then it'll be up to the governor to say, to give a middle finger to that court order if it were to come down. And the court is a lot different now than it was then. So it, I, I, as, as awful as uh, Trump's justices have been um, so far, and they, and they truly, they truly are awful people. Um, maybe it's now that Trump has gone, maybe they'll find their more um, constitutional voice. I maybe, hopefully, uh, in which case they can say that uh, Texas can, you know, arrest and detain these illegal aliens. I know that some another key that Texas would need to say that they're they're sending their troops down there to enforce Texas law rather than trying to enforce federal law. That was, I think, what, I mean, it was, I don't think that should have been a losing argument in the Arizona case, but that's ultimately how they, how Arizona, the Arizona case was lost. The the court said that it's up to the federal government to decide how to enforce or not enforce its laws. Um, But Texas has its own laws against smuggling, against human trafficking, against drugs. And they can say that their interest is in enforcing their own laws and hopefully that's the way they'll litigate it if Biden sues them. That, that's my hope. So I know somebody claimed the other day, some pundit or expert, that the states never gave up the sovereignty of their borders. The feds can protect the borders even if the states don't want to, but the states never gave up that power. Does that make sense? That's how I read the Constitution. I, I think that the Arizona case was decided wrongly. I and mean, the fact, you know, you Rhode know, Island can keep New Yorkers out because of COVID, but Texas can't keep illegal aliens out. We're kind of, you know, twisting ourselves into pretzels, aren't we? If, if you look at the map of the West, right, you see all these, quote unquote, federal lands. Um, you know, nine, 90% of Nevada is federal land and Utah and whatnot. And there are no federal lands. It's, it's all unconstitutional. Uh, land can be leased to the feds by the states, but. Can you explain that? Can you explain both sides of that, Ed? Um, There's no provision in the Constitution for the federal government to own any land at all, much less control it. Um, They can, you know, they can lease land or or borrow it or whatever from the states, but they can't, they can't own any land at all, Um, except the D.C. They can own D.C. So how did they get it to be called their land? Uh, They just uh, expropriated it. Well, no, they got it through the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, but they, when it was divided up into the states, right? The states, it then became the state's land, right? All of these federal, all, like Teddy Roosevelt started the first federal national parks sort of in, in the progressive era by basically taking, the, taking this land and turning it into a national park. And since, uh, and when the, um, you know, in the New Deal, 
uh, Franklin uh, Roosevelt basically took all the rest of the land. I mean, do they just took it? I don't Why know. Why is that never challenged? How come that's not ever challenged in court? If it's not technically constitutional, why do they keep getting away with it? Well, I, I mean, I think that it was the federal government got title to most of those lands, if not all of those lands, when it, when Jefferson made the Louisiana Purchase. Now, states, you know, they could, it, it, the federal government did subdivide those lands and allow private ownership and allow and, and create states out of them. But, um, you know, the Jefferson, at, at the time he did it, Jefferson thought that the Louisiana Purchase was probably unconstitutional, but he decided to do it anyway. Um, I'm not sure where, who would have standing to, to challenge, I mean, what would, who would bring that lawsuit? What would the lawsuit say? Well, it wouldn't matter. The courts wouldn't rule in favor of it anyway, because they've long since left constitutionality behind. But I mean, Virginia, not one of the, uh, you know, there's a federal Manassas Battlefield National Park, which is right up the road, which you should go to, by the way, before they tear down the statue of uh, Stonewall Jackson. Um, that's a, that's federal land. That's, I, you know, I like it. I, I go there. It's a beautiful place. I love it. I'm glad it's there as a thing, but it's still unconstitutional. So whether Louisiana Purchase affected those Western states, like Utah, Wyoming? Yeah. But it couldn't possibly have affected Texas, right? Because Texas wasn't... Texas, Texas right. was allowed in, California. Texas was allowed in as a republic, right? Right, Texas was a republic from 1836 to 1845. When it what was about California? California was not part of the Louisiana Purchase. Okay, so all these states, and like I know, there are these Western states which are mostly quote unquote Actually, federal. Mm -hmm. When they became states, so they were quote unquote territories or something before, right? Yep. And so that land, all of that land was owned by the feds? Like, how does it work? If Louisiana Purchase gave the land to the feds and they owned all of it, right? Yeah, and I'm not. I'd have to go back. I'm not sure if California was was obtained from Spain or if it was actually part of the Louisiana Purchase. I don't remember. No, California wasn't part of the uh, Louisiana Purchase. It was. It was the bottom part was obtained. Uh, you know, in the Spanish, um, the War of 1848. It was a uh, ceded to the United States from Spain. Um, so, I mean, in that sense, it was under the protectorship of the federal government, but I, I it's, there's, I, yeah, so I tend to disagree. I, th I don't think it was uh, under the sovereignty of, um, there was more under the protection, protectorship, but again, that's a long story. I just, uh, I just, I'm not a big fan of uh, the federal government just seizing all of this uh, power, and I don't, I don't, see how we're going to stop it other than some state, you know, push back. And I'm glad that, that, uh, that Texas is pushing back. I think their um, governor is a bit of a weasel. Um, you know, he's, he's our weasel, but he's a weasel. Uh, but I think the um, uh, was Attorney General Paxton. I think he's, he's good. I like him. He's got a future. So back to the state. So Wyoming becomes a state, and at that point, some of the land is released by the feds. Why isn't all of Wyoming owned by the feds? I'm not sure the answer to that question, but there were a whole bunch of ordinances, like the Northwest Land Ordinance of 1780, 
89 or 87 or something like that, uh, where the federal government made provision for how uh, land could be acquired by, by, by pioneers moving west. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know the history as to how states, you know, how, how the state would have gotten title to any of the lands. I just don't know the answer to that question. Because well, you the, know, states, the states become sovereign upon admission to the union, right? So they, they, they are, have co-sovereignty. You know, there's no difference between the sovereignty of Montana and the sovereignty of Virginia, even though one was an independent country at one point and, and one wasn't. Um, right. But sovereignty is not title to land, though, right? Right. But it is, um, you know, it, it does mean that that territory is self-governing. OK, right. if it's federal that, land, the state can't license its use, land, right? right? I'm sorry, Steve. Go ahead. If it's federal land, the state cannot license its use for, let's say, mining, drilling, et cetera, correct? Correct. Yeah. OK, so then they're not sovereign in the sense that they can't do with that land what they want to do. And I know that in the secessionist movements, this is one of the big questions. Let's say Wyoming secedes, what happens to all that federal land? Well, one of the things I think uh, this goes back to, um, you know, it's another Civil War uh, issue. Um, the, the federal forts uh, in the country were, were loaned by the states to the federal government. Um, they were not federally owned. They were, they were, you know, ceded to the, not ceded, but loaned to the federal government by the states. And so when the various states seceded from the union, um, the, they took back title to these forts and the union soldiers uh, left all but three because they were just obeying, you know, the, the precedent and the law. And of course the Fort Sumter was one of the ones that they didn't leave. Um, and uh, at the end of the war, uh, yeah, as if war can solve intellectual problems, um, uh, General then President Grant said something of, on the order of, um, you know, the federal government built all of your, um, your facilities and, you know, the federal government did all this for you, you just can't leave. Um, without, you know, repaying the federal government for all we've invested in you. Of course, that's nonsense. Uh, the, you know, all these states invested themselves. The federal government didn't do squat. Um, but that was kind of the idea. And that, I think, was the sort of overwhelming philosophical, uh, you know, point that then allowed the federal government to run roughshod on all the states in the West where the land hadn't gone into private ownership. So, I mean, but, but again, it was always the feds out West. So it was never the states that was loaned or sold. It was always the feds. No, I don't think so. There was nobody out there. I mean, to say yeah, it was it the goes feds. goes back to the Louisiana Purchase. You're saying the feds owned it by virtue of the purchase. Whether yeah. there was somebody out there or not, the feds owned the land. Yes. And the only way I could get land was either buy it from the feds or the feds granted it to me. Correct. But the feds, but the, when the states were organized, the states then became, I mean, really this, this land was taken by Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, you know, Montana became a state a long time before Franklin Roosevelt was president. So, I mean, it was taken by the new dealers. And I think they might've argued upon in this way. Um, I'm not familiar with the argument, but um, at the time, I, I don't know even they, whether they made arguments at the time. Um, 
So I, I think it's just- Steve what, uh, Steve, what are you getting at though? What's, what's your ultimate question here? Well, we have an ultimate question. <laughs> I, I know that secessionists talk about it. If the if a state secedes and half of their land, quote unquote, belongs to the federal government, do they take that with them? Like who owns it? What happens to it? Because the state really isn't sovereign over its own territory. Well, it depends on whether you agree with General Grant or not. I mean, if you agree with the the um, secessionists, then it's all their land because they're a sovereign state and that includes all the land in it. If you agree with General Grant, then they can't take it. I mean, I guess ultimately Mike makes right, but. Well, I don't think ultimately Mike makes right at all. Right makes right. Uh, Mike... No, that's funny because <laughs> some of us don't agree with Abe Lincoln burning the South down, but Mike made right. So in the real world, Mike always makes right. There's a reason I don't speak German fluently. Yeah, I mean, but you know that, I mean, we can give lots of examples where the bad guys have won over the years and that didn't make it right, so. Um, uh, it made it real, and they write yeah, the history it, books. It, they write the history books. They write the so, history books. You know, whoever wins the battle keeps the land. That, that's the kind of bottom line. I mean, forget about Indian reservations and what happens to those, because I don't really get those. Those were given by the feds to the Indians, right? I don't know whether given is the right word, but they were exactly. reserved for the Indians. Right. And had the feds not owned them, they could not have done that, right? No, they were considered Indian lands in the first place. That's yeah, there were treaties with the Indian nations that established their things. And the, the treaties were consistently broken by the feds uh, as the reservations got smaller and smaller. But I mean, right. they so were always considered Indian lands. So much for treaties. But I'm saying, so when the feds bought that land in Louisiana Purchase, that land did not belong to the Indians because they didn't buy it from the Indians, did they? No, they bought it from Napoleon, from France. Right. So it, the land was not always the Indians because they bought it from Napoleon. Well, I don't think Napoleon controlled any of it either. I mean, remember, the European countries divided up the New World um, on paper. But, the, but, you know, that doesn't constitute ownership in any... Um, in any theory of ownership, uh, other than the purely status theory of ownership, which I don't think any of us agree to, uh, you know, ownership. France, France only, France under Napoleon controlled New Orleans, and then they had a claim to the rest of the territory, but they never really did anything with it. Jefferson only wanted to buy New Orleans, and he, that's what he sent his, his representatives over there to purchase New Orleans, and the and Napoleon counteroffered and said, what if you buy the whole damn thing and, you know, we'll just get out of there. And Jefferson debated whether it was a constitutional purchase and said, you know what, this is too good of the deal to get us, you know, to get France off this continent. We're going to just buy the land. And he did it. That's that's basically what right. he bought land from somebody who didn't own it. They had a claim to it, whether they owned it or not, is, is an open they had a political claim to it, which had a political claim, which oh, yeah. didn't include all the Indians who were in the future going to be kicked off of all of it. Yes. Among others, yeah. How are we going to tie this to current events today, Steve? Um, I'm not sure how we're going to tie it to current events. I know it's going to come up and it is kind of tied to what Texas is doing in Texas, isn't it? Yeah. One of the, uh, just, on, just popped up on Twitter is that uh, Ken Paxton, Attorney General of Texas is now suing Austin and Travis County because the counties are continuing to insist upon mask mandates 
um, and the governor had signed a executive order. Uh, no person may be required by any jurisdiction to wear or mandate the wearing of a face covering. So uh, there's this fight with Austin, I think. Uh, good for good for Ken Paxton. Now, okay, so I'm going to flip that scenario. Um, if the governor were to say everybody has to wear a mask and a municipality or county says, no, we don't, why do you need a lawsuit? Why don't you just send in the National Guard or send in the state troopers? This is a lawsuit to enforce a law, isn't it? Like, what is that? Well, there's no law behind any of these mandates or lockdowns or anything. I mean, it, you know, there's some law in Virginia I know that says, oh, in an emergency, the government can do whatever he wants. But, and so that's what the law says, but that's okay. not a law. But that's assuming, not a law. Uh, that's, that's another question. It's a big fight in New Hampshire, what, if it's a law or not. But assuming that the state is sovereign and that the cities get their power from the state, why does the state need to go to a court to enforce its rules? Well, because I don't think they want to just willy-nilly send the National Guard in and, you know, have troops blazing to enforce their rules. They'd rather try and get a court order. Right. So you realize that there's a certain silliness in that logic that a state legislature doesn't want to use its power to force the city to do something, but we will use our forced to enforce the ruling of one judge. How does that even make sense? What's wrong with the whole system? Well, because if you if you give them a chance to fight it out through, you know, through reasoned argument and they lose and then they still won't comply, then the use of force becomes more legitimate. You know, last week we talked about, you know, going from point A to point Z. You can't always go from A to Z. Sometimes you got to make stops in between. And in this case, in that, in the case you're describing, I think the stops in between are, you know, file a lawsuit, get a court order, and if they disobey that, then the use of force becomes more legitimized. Well, I, I tend to disagree. I think the real reason is the fact that the pro-statist politicians are uh, proudly and um, and assertively statist, whereas the pro-liberty politicians are a bunch of wusses. Again, if Travis County is enforcing a man mask mandate against the law. I would have uh, the Texas Rangers go in and arrest every one of those uh, politicians who are trying to do this. I wouldn't go to court. I agree with Steve. I'd arrest them all, throw them in jail, tell them to get out when they uh, when they uh, remove the uh, mask mandate. Um, that a, a person who is not a complete wuss would do that. And I think we need a little bit of that from our politicians on the right. Because I think the Democrats would play it that way, wouldn't they? I think they would. I absolutely think they would. So, okay, I'm not keeping score of how many people agree with me this show, but I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. So, <laughs> I'm Joe, let I didn't say anything. anybody bring up any topic that they wanted to have brought up before we close out. I'll well, just I'll bring some. Okay, Mike, go ahead. I don't care. I don't care about Prince Harry or his wife, and I didn't watch any of it, and I don't care. And I, I, I think uh, Alu might have been proud to hear Mark Stein talking on Tucker the other night about how, uh, you know, sometimes maybe a, a monarchy isn't necessarily worse than a democracy, where we, as uh, Ed was pointing out, wh whore themselves out just to be in office all the time. <laughs> 
So, but I, I could care less about the prince and his wife. But do we care that Piers Morgan apparently lost or walked off his job because of this? And that whole free speech issue, of course, there's no free speech in Britain, but. Yes. No free speech in the United States. Well, um, Piers we Morgan. We have it on paper. <laughs> on paper. Yeah, I think, of course, they're, you know, the Megan Yoko Ono 2.0 is a reprehensible human being, and, and so is Harry, and so are most of the royal family. Um, I guess it's interesting because, uh, you know, they're such victims. They only have like, what, $25 million in trust fund to live on, and, and everybody's being mean to them. And, uh, you know, I feel so sorry for them. I mean, if I only had $25 million, I feel like I feel terrible. Uh, well, victimhood is sort of the- And of course, Oprah, Oprah is an amazed, uh, amazing victim, you know, as a, as a poor black woman who's been discriminated against all her life. I'm sure that if, if she hasn't faced all that horrible discrimination, she'd have you know, four or $5 billion instead of the one or the two that she actually has, you know, so she's a, she's a terrible victim. And I, I feel sorry for, I feel sorry for all of them really. Um, you know, they work so hard doing something <laughs> and, uh, and they live in such squalor. Um, it's victimhood, just it's hard. Victimhood is the modern currency. It's very powerful. It a lot of things victimhood yeah and well, they may actually be overplaying their hand i'm not sure and of course poor piers morgan is a victimizer right i mean he's a white guy he's straight you know he's uh, he's gotten off the train um to crazy town you know and uh did know. he get off though or is he just temporarily um on the sidelines he he got off a, a year or so ago he, uh, on a number of the on a number of issues. You know, uh, he got he, he now that doesn't say he's not still a liberal. He he is, but he, he you know most people are on this train to Crazy Town and they just keep going and going and going no matter how crazy it gets. Uh, but occasionally someone will get off, and I think Piers Morgan got off about a year ago. So he he's uh, you know he's still far to. Speaking left. of which, isn't Bill Maher kind of uh, he's slightly on the train too? Yeah. There's a, a lot of people who are getting off the train. Or being kind of kicked off the train. Jody, is there anything you wanted to uh, ask, contribute? No, this was, it was great listening to you guys. I did think of one thing as I was listening though, and we were talking, you're talking about the, the, the um, stimulus. I, I hate to use that word, the bribery or something. Um, and one of the worst things, I mean, it, it all seems really tragic and scary, but one of the worst things to me because we, we always, we, and I know I've said this before in ways, but we, we always have this, you know, Democrat, uh, Republican, like this is a, um, a political discussion, but I really truly always believe it is only about the minds uh, and hearts of the people. And when we look at what they're doing with this stimulus, and as Ed P has highlighted, every Democrat comes in and they bail out, they give money to the blue states. And those blue states get to kind of repair all of their mistakes, right? It's that continuation of the Democrats and the left having the ability to blur the minds 
hearts of the people and the hearts and the minds of the people by sort of covering up the realities of their mistakes. You can't even get through to the mind, hearts and minds of the people right now how devastating big government has been, the supplemental poverty rates, the violence, those things that have been truly crushing. And I live in Illinois. I'd hate to see my state go bankrupt, but you know what? The reality of the bad management has to find its way into the hearts and minds of the American people. And the Democrats continuing to do these things like bailing out these states really just perpetuates their ability to um, pretend that what they're doing to their own citizens isn't ultimately bad. And when we talk about, you know, oh, another thing I want to just throw in real quick, attendant to that very concept, I saw how they want to put it in to the stimulus, or I hate that word. I don't know. What else can we call it? But Orculus too. Yeah. So they want to put it in so that states can't um, lower taxes, right? So Florida, all, as states are competing, as states are competing as blue states and as red states, and individuals get to vote with their feet and go where the better managed states are, now Democrats are going to continue to thwart that ability for their worldview to be on display because, oh, no, 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 we can't have states with lower taxes because then they win that with the hearts and minds of the people. So I see this as so dangerous because it continues their very, 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 what, six decades of manipulating the hearts and minds of the American people. And this is really, really helping that. Um, the, the hearts and minds of the people won't really be changed until they really understand what's going on and what the impacts are of the left's agenda and big government. And you know, I, I heard that seven, some 73% of Americans support the stimulus because probably most of them don't even understand what's in it, what's, what it's about. And this is all attendant to that. It's all a mass uh, manipulation that the Democrats continue so successfully to employ. Well, I just want to say that. And they won't, and people won't understand it until there's a real opposition that points it out to them and explains what's going on instead of going along and getting along and instead of passing stimulus bills that are for all intents and purposes identical while Trump was president. I mean, you, well, even, you even if some, even if, you know, somebody wasn't there explaining it, at least, you know, you could see it happening in the real world when you know areas fail or when wait a minute i can't live here um taxes are too high i'm going to this state with low taxes when they take those possibilities out so that i can't even figure it out in my own living i there is no state to go for, to tell me that oh it's really better to live in a state that has lower taxes now i, I can't even play that out in my own world republicans in illinois are not going to solve the problem but republicans in neighboring uh, Nebraska or Iowa or, you know, other states, you know, Kansas, they can say they, they need to go to their people and say, this is what Democrats do. They take your money and they bail out Chicago. They bail out New York. They bail but, out Los Angeles. 
But my point, though, is that and the national level, that's what the Democrats seem to be doing is they're taking the ability for any Republicans to even govern in a conservative way. If they make all of these states unable to govern in a conservative way, we're never going to really see conservatism and leftism on actual display. Not that we can see now because they won't let you. Right. That's what the Democrats are trying to do. But it's up to Republican candidates running in 2022. And, you know, New Jersey and Virginia have off year elections this year. You know, when there's an election, the the Republican candidates need to educate their electorates and say, this is what's going on. We need to make sure that every district in in Nebraska, every district in Kansas, every district in Utah has has Republicans. I agree that it comes down to an educated electorate. I just I don't see Republicans doing that. Obviously, our media doesn't do it. Our um, education system doesn't do it. It hasn't been happening. This is not a new phenomenon. This is what six decades at least where the true education of the electorate is no longer. it's, It's not even just a lack of education. It is an active active manipulation, which is, it, which is even worse than failing to educate is to actively manipulate is what's, and these bailouts, this saving blue states, and now taking it a really scary step further and saying that conservative states can't lower taxes, because if they lower taxes, what's, people vote with their feet. People what are going to go. Uh, what is the provision that you're talking about? I don't know. I read about it and or uh, I can't remember where I read it, but yeah, something that says, and you getting this money, you can't there, you can't then uh, lower your taxes in your state. There, there's strings attached to everything, and, and I'm sure. And, I mean, I'm I, sure. I, I, the positive, spin, the positive spin I have on that is that just more usurpation of of power from from the federal government, and if anything, it's going to inch us ever closer to, you know, separation. <laughs> People yeah. have to know about it. You know, it has to be, again, 70, some 73% of <laughs> Americans support this because they don't really understand the ramifications of what's happening. I think people have become so desensitized to things. And, and I think Ed P touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think until something really hits you, until it really affects you, you don't care. People don't care. I mean, there are people on the right that are living their daily lives every day. They don't watch uh, Sean Hannity or Tucker every day like some of us do or listen to talk radio. They're, they're just, they're worried about their families. And until all of these policies and, and a lot of what we were talking about throughout this program about the economy and the dollar and everything like that, until that, that really harms people, that hurts them, I don't think people care. I think I know, but that's part of what I was saying, though. When I can't even, when I can't even gauge it in my own life. So okay, I live in Illinois, and I'm like, wait, this really hurts me to have big government taxes. Now, in the in the left's worldview, I can't even gauge that. There's no juxtaposition in my in my life to even make a sentient. Uh, assertion and ask what's going on because they've taken out right. any alternative this world for me to look at and say, oh, wait, 
look, it's really a lot better over in that state where they haven't destroyed businesses with their big government and their high taxes. And uh, the cost of living is, look at the house I could buy for so much cheaper. It's just- I, it doesn't hit people in the real world when they don't let it Right, Jody, it's just another extension of cancel culture. I mean, that's the way the left goes. They can't win the argument on the merits, so they have to silence you and make it impossible for you to see any alternative viewpoint or any other alternative possibility. Consequences of, yes, yes. Sorry, I didn't mean to start a discussion. I just was out of my mind. (laughs) It's a good discussion to have. I think there's a lot of layers to it. We should pick up on it. Maybe in another another program. Yeah, well... I know we're really over on time. There were two sort of related things that I wanted to just make sure we, we at least mention. Maybe we'll talk about them next week. Um, and I think they're related. I mean, one is obviously the, the Andrew Cuomo story and, and how not only are women coming out of the woodwork, but how, uh, I mean, I'm not going to predict that he's going down, but, it, it, you know, a week or two ago, I, I don't think it was even conceivable that he was going down. And now I can see it happening. Um, and I think the related story is, the seeming, at least to me, uh, it seems like Biden is just out of control. It just seems like he's, he's cognitively deteriorating at a rapid rate. He's, you know, even the, the, the reporters on the, you know, on the Washington beat are starting to ask Press Secretary Saki, when is he going to have a press conference? When is he going to take questions? Um, and I think I think maybe the, the Democrats have miscalculated as to how well they'd be able to prop up and hide Biden. Um, it seems like he's he's in, in some trouble right now. And I think uh, I think that the Cuomo story is related because I think Cuomo is a potential rival for, for Harris down the line. Um, and I think that I think that Democrats are a little concerned that if Biden becomes incapacitated or or heaven forbid for them dies harris becomes president but they have to get a new vice president approved by the senate and they wouldn't have a 51 a 51st vote to do it once harris becomes president um so i think that's sort of you know the larger issue the bigger picture of what's going on right now i think that's part of why they're hammering down on cuomo um and i think that you know the you know biden has had this deer in the headlight look almost every day this week. I mean, he keeps making stupid comments when he's, when he's caught it at, uh, you know, little outings that he does and, and somebody will fire, you know, throw a quick question at him and he doesn't even know how to answer it. Um, so I don't know, it's something to watch and, and he, his time may be more limited than we all thought. I, I think their goal probably is to get past the midterm and then make the switcheroo at that point. But I'm not sure that, again, that most people really care about this. You know, we see it. We knew we knew it from before. I'm not talking about people, Mike. I'm talking about the, the politicians themselves. And I think, you know, like I said, it's a problem for the Democrat Party if Biden can't continue because Harris, you know, Kamala is the 51st vote in the Senate. If she becomes president, they don't have a 51st vote. They won't let it get to that point. I just the way they play the game. The guy. I mean, we don't well, know. If he, die, if he dies, he dies. But, you know, otherwise, I, I don't. You know, it's weekend at Biden's for the uh, foreseeable future. Um, I, I think yeah, but he's, maybe he's they could do a weekend. Out. It could be the weekend at Bernie's presidency. You know, you never know. 
I happen to think that tomorrow night he's going to prove us all wrong. He's going to give a great lucid speech and we're all going to apologize. Well, they'll put enough drugs in him to make him do that. Yeah, they can do yeah. that. Right. There's, no one's going to be able to ask him questions. All he's going to have to do is be able to read a teleprompter. Which is a with. great drug. But, yeah, pretty scary stuff. Okay, we're going to wrap for today. Somebody please be in charge of remembering what we want to discuss next time. I wanted to say one thing. Thank you very Go much for, for having me. Next week is the one year anniversary of the 15 days to slow the spread. So I hope yeah. to talk a little bit about that. Uh, I was in favor of the 15 days to slow the spread and Ed was absolutely <laughs> against it and he was right and I was wrong. So I wanted to publicly apologize for uh, being in favor of it uh, and uh, distrusting my good friend, Ed, who was right about it. And well, I, I have to agree there. Um, there's one thing that Ed said at one point was that it is a permanent attack on our liberty, the lockdowns and the restrictions. And it's, it's stuck with me, Ed. You were totally 100% right about that. And uh, there's nothing more that needs to be said. We're living it. They're not letting go of the, the mask mandates and, and everything. So, Well, but, we, can have, we can have a little bit more to say about it next week. And uh, the one last thing I wanted to say, I felt like I was a little bit more of a student today, which is, I say that in a good way. I really appreciate Ed P's contribution. Me too. Me too. Very, very interesting. Great discussion. Yeah, I want to thank Ed and Ed for that. Um, I mean this totally positive, positively when I say I am far more confused than I was before, but I think that's a good thing. Now I have even more information about which to be confused. So with that, we wish everybody a good rest of your day. We'll be up on iTunes, SoundCloud, Rumble, hopefully within an hour or so. As always, we invite anyone listening to this as a podcast to join us live, chime in your questions. We have some really great experts sharing their opinions here for which I am grateful. So with that, have a wonderful evening. Thanks everyone for participating.